All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 39, for June 2022. In heaven, there is no beer. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and volunteer podcaster. Beer. It has a long history in our country, and Philadelphia played a surprisingly strong role in its development. We even have a section of the city called Brewery Town, and hundreds of Philadelphians live in apartments that used to be breweries. This episode of All Bones Consider, Laurel Hill Stories, talks about beer from different perspectives. How did breweries start in our green country town? Where were they located? Who drank it? How did one brewery stay in one family for 10 generations? What happened at the Centennial Exposition to spread the word about Philadelphia beer? Even though Louis Bergdahl was one of the most famous brewers in the country, his name became despised because of a grandson who was the most hated draft dodger during the Great War. And we will finish with the story of a legendary Philadelphia bar fight and its aftermath. All this and more on the June edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. In heaven, there is no beer. Just how important is beer in American history? I'm going to give you two examples. In 1620, the Mayflower, which had originally planned to sail to the Hudson River, made an unplanned stop at Plymouth because, as William Bradford noted in his journal, quote, We could not now take time for further search or consideration, our victuals being much spent, especially our beer. Water on ships became contaminated with bacteria and developed a foul smell and flavor over a short period of time. With proper care, beer could last for weeks or months, especially when you had an expert barrel worker or cooper aboard, in this case a man named John Alden. 
Beer, a reliable source of carbohydrates, was a stable drink aboard the Mayflower, being consumed daily by men, women, and children. Its sailors received a daily ration of one gallon of beer each. Now, jump ahead 262 years. It's 1882. Baseball is becoming our national pastime, but the National League is falling apart. It had recently doubled the price of admission tickets, and they banned Sunday playing, gambling, and beer. Owners of clubs in St. Louis, Cincinnati, Baltimore, Louisville, and Pittsburgh felt otherwise. In fact, several of the owners were themselves brewers. Banding together, these so-called river cities formed the American Association specifically for the average working man. Tickets were only 25 cents. Games were played on the Sabbath, the only day of rest for most working men. And beer, glorious beer, was gladly served to attendees. The National League looked down its nose and started calling the upstarts the Beer and Whiskey League. But beer and baseball were forever linked. How do we define a liquid as beer? At its simplest, beer is a malt liquor. It's the product of fermentation of a cereal malt. So, what is malt? Some cereal grain, barley is the most common, is dampened to induce germination and then heated and dried to stop germination, thereby producing malt. Depending on the temperature at which malt is dried, it will come out darker, used for brewing stout and porter, or lighter, used for various ales and lagers. Malted grain can be used to make beer, whiskey, malted milk, malt vinegar, flavored drinks like Ovaltine, confections like Whoppers, and even bagels. The malt must be ground and infused or decocted with water, a process called mashing. In an infusion, the grain is immersed in hot boiled water and steeped like tea. In a decoction, the grain is put into the water and the two are boiled up together. The resulting product is wort, W-O-R-T. Enzymes in the malt break down proteins in the grain into forms that will be used by yeast. After straining and cooling the wort, add the yeast. This causes fermentation. Yeast feeding on the sugar content of the malt causes alcohol and carbonic acid gas to be formed. During colonial days and for the first century of the country, beer was part of the daily ritual of Americans. Beer was food. It represented a safe alternative to water, which was frequently contaminated with illnesses like cholera and typhoid. The colonists started by brewing their own beer from malted barley imported from England. But they soon learned to brew beer using malted local corn. In 1685, William Penn noted in his diary that a brewer had established himself and was supplying inhabitants of his new green country town with beer. By the 1720s, there were five breweries in Philadelphia, all within a block or so of each other down by the wharves on the Delaware River. Over the next half century, nearly 30 brewers started up in the city, and at the time of the Revolutionary War, many of them were still in business. The colonial beer consumer had a few choices. 
Small beer was weak in malt taste and low in alcohol. It required no aging. It was meant for immediate drinking. Small beer was a standard beverage at meals and enjoyed by men, women, and children alike. Table beer, ship's beer, and strong beer were more powerful brews that were meant for keeping. Gentlemen kept barrels in their cellars next to their casks of Madeira and rum. Everyone drank beer. Harvard College had its own brew houses. Students got a pint of beer with their morning bread and with their dinner and supper and during two daily beverages, light meals between the main meals. By the late 18th century, Americans were strategizing about how to promote the making and drinking of beer. England had a thriving export business of beer to the colonies while suppressing the development of American industry. The colonists retaliated by refusing to purchase English beer and buying American. I'd call it a boycott, except the term boycott did not come into use until more than a hundred years later. And while he was living in Philadelphia, George Washington was a steady customer of Philadelphia brewer Robert Hare, whose father had been a brewer in London and who specialized in a new kind of drink known as porter, well-hopped and dark in appearance due to the use of brown malt. It was named because of its popularity among the porters of London. Soon after arriving in Philadelphia in 1773, Hare brewed the first porter in America. He is buried in Christ Church Burial Ground. Not long after independence was declared in 1776, 15 more Philadelphia brewers sprang into business. By 1789, Washington was writing to Lafayette, We have already been too long subject to British prejudices. I use no porter or cheese in my family, but such as is made in America. Both these articles may now be purchased of an excellent quality. When clean water became accessible to all in Philadelphia around 1800, beer consumption dropped a little, but by 1810, there were about 140 local breweries. They produced a total of 182,690 barrels of beer. Traditionally, a barrel of beer holds 36 gallons, or roughly 140 liters. Most beer drunk in the United States looked nothing like what we expect today. The brews were dark or cloudy or both. In 1842, brewers of Pilsen in the Austrian province of Bohemia discovered a process for making a clear golden beer. It was known as lager because it required storage or lagering in cold caves for several months before it was ready to drink. Now, if you were in a mechanized unit of the army, like I was more than 50 years ago, you probably remember the term lager, L-A-A-G-E-R, with two A's. It defined a temporary fortification arranged in a circle or a square. That word comes from the Afrikaans language and is a residuum of the Boer Wars. Lager, L-A-G-E-R, one A, was introduced at the same time that mass-produced glasses were replacing opaque wood, leather, and ceramic steins. The first lager in the United States is credited to the Philadelphia brew house of German immigrant John Wagner, who produced it for private use by his friends. The earliest commercial lager brewery was probably began in Philadelphia in 1844 
by Charles Engel in partnership with Charles C. Wolfe. This new lager was colder and more refreshing than ale or porter, and it took America by storm. German immigrants were pouring into American cities, more than a million of them by 1850, and lager was their brew of choice. New American lager masters set up breweries with names that still resonate today. In 1842, the Prussian Schaefer brothers, Frederick and Maximilian, set up the first commercial lager brewery in New York City. In Milwaukee, a prominent brew town because of a large German population and the ready availability of ice, the daughter of the brewer Jacob Best married steamboat captain Frederick Pabst. When brewer August Krug died in 1856, his widow married the bookkeeper Joseph Schlitz. In St. Louis, soap maker Eberhard Enhauser acquired a small brewery in 1860 and had the good fortune to acquire a son-in-law, Adolphus Bush, as a partner. Boyd's Philadelphia Directory for 1858 listed 543 porterhouses with a notation to see also billiard parlors, bowling saloons, lager beer saloons, restaurants, and hotels. The next year, Boyd's listed 577 locker beer saloons. Remember that the consolidation had occurred in 1854. It brought local towns and neighborhoods together, increased the city population to about a half million. That's only one tavern per 850 people. By the beginning of the Civil War, the country produced nearly four million barrels of beer, and about a quarter of it was lager. Between 1865 and 1895, per capita consumption of beer rose by 340%. It grew from 3.4 gallons per capita to 15 gallons. During the same period, total output rose more than eightfold to 33.6 million barrels. But the number of firms actually fell by 46%. And the combined output of two states, New York and Pennsylvania, accounted for 48% of the brew in 1865 and 40% in 1895. Now, there were some other items that were developed during this period. The Goulding bottle washing machine in 1884, which ended the need for workers to clean individual bottles by hand. And the Crown Cork and Seal Company's metal cap in 1892, which provided brewers with a secure stopper for beer bottles that could be applied by machines. Thus, the Crown cap is actually named for the founder not because it looks like a crown. A new cultural craze also fed the beer frenzy, beer gardens. These ancestors to the amusement park could be either open air or enclosed winter gardens. They featured live music and welcome families on Sunday. They had tables and chairs instead of bars and stools and were known for their food as much as for their beer. Now, a detailed history of colonial brewers is beyond the scope of this podcast. I will talk about the Morris and Perot families, though. There's an excellent book called Philadelphia Beer, A Heady History of Brewing in the Cradle of Liberty. It was written and published by Rich Wagner in 2012. 
So in the rest of the podcast, I'm going to look at a few brewers and some beer-associated stories, because hardly any good tale starts with, well, I was eating a salad... I'm going to start the story with Francis Peratt, who find a grave incorrectly states, quote, purchased the first plot at Laurel Hills Cemetery, end quote. He wasn't even among the first ten. Now, I pronounce his name Peratt because he was a Huguenot. To know Peratt, we have to understand what came before. Go way back to 1687, the year that the British immigrant Anthony Morris Jr. purchased a lot on Front Street below Walnut and built a brewery and a malt house. Morris was born in London in 1654. He was a devout Quaker, and he served as the second mayor of Philadelphia. Edward Shippen was the first. If you look at Benjamin West's famous 1772 painting, Penn's Treaty with the Indians, which is on the second floor of the collection of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, Anthony Morris Jr. is to the left of Penn. He has a broad-brimmed hat. He has a cane in his right hand. When Anthony Jr. died in 1721, his will left, quote, to my son Anthony Morris, my bank, and water lot in Philadelphia with brew house, malt house, brewing utensils, negroes, horses, and cattle, except one cow which I intend for my wife. End quote. I have no further information on the number of enslaved people that Morris used in his brewing business. The son, Anthony Morris III, was born in London in 1681 and was 40 when he took over the business, eventually becoming known simply as Anthony the Brewer. That same year, he was elected representative from Pennsylvania in the Assembly of the Province of Pennsylvania. In 1741, he built a malt house on the west side of 2nd Street between Arch and Race. When Morris III died in 1763, he left the business to Anthony Morris IV, born in 1705. Fourth expanded the business by purchasing a lot at the corner of Dock Street and Pear Street in 1745. He chose the property because of the presence of several natural springs on it. He died in 1780. Anthony Jr., the third and the fourth are all interred in the Friends Arch Street Meeting House burial ground. Anthony V, born in 1738, and his brother Thomas took over the business. But Major Anthony Morris V was killed at the Battle of Princeton on the 3rd of July, 1777. He is assumed to be interred in a mass grave on that battlefield. Now, while Anthony V was away fighting, his brother Thomas shared the brewery duties with another brother, Samuel Morris, who was the initial commander of the First City Troop and governor of the private club, the Fish House of the State in Schuylkill, for 46 years. This legendary social club, the origin of the wickedly strong Fish House Punch, still toasts Captain Morris at every meeting after doing the same for George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Samuel married the daughter of Caspar Wistar and withdrew from the brewery partnership after about two years. 
So when Thomas Sr. died in 1809, his sons, Thomas Morris II and Joseph S. Morris, took over as the fifth generation of brewers. Thomas II, like his father, was a manager of Pennsylvania Hospital for a number of years. It was this twosome of Thomas II and Joseph that took on teenager Francis Perrot as an apprentice. Perrot and his family, as I mentioned, were French Huguenots. During the French Wars of Religion in the 16th century, an ancestor of Francis, James Perrot, and 19 others were condemned because of their religion. Huguenots were French Calvinist Protestants. Each of them was placed in a separate cell with the door walled up without food or water for 21 days. At the end of the three weeks, the walls of the doors were taken down, and all the prisoners except James Perrot were dead of starvation and dehydration. As it happens, a chicken had a nest in the dark corner of James' cell, and she came daily through a small hole in the window and laid an egg. This gave James enough liquid and solid nourishment to live for three weeks. The Perrots were first represented in the city of Philadelphia by the West India House of Elliston and John Perrot. Francis's father paid the Morris brothers a thousand dollars for the privilege of having his son work for them for nothing and learn the brewing trade. One of his duties was to daily carry 90 bushels of malt on his back to the third floor, where it was ground, and then carry it one story higher. The standard weight of malt is 34 pounds per bushel. So he was carrying about a ton and a half per day up two flights of stairs, roughly one bushel every five minutes of an eight-hour workday. In 1818, Francis started his own business on the south side of Vine Street above 3rd Street. The next year, Francis Perrot hired Thomas Holloway to build him a stationary steam engine, which was used in the brewery to power devices that would hoist, wet, turn, aerate, and dry the grain with minimal human assistance. Steam engines were not exactly a novelty in the city. 33 years before this machine was set up, a steamboat had navigated the Delaware River in regular traffic during a whole season, the first of its kind in the world. Architect Benjamin Latrobe used steam engines to pump water from the Schuylkill to the city waterworks, then located at Center Square, which is now the site of City Hall. In 1811, steamboat service had started on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, but the Holloway Perrot stationary steam engine predated the first steam locomotive by 11 years. This steam engine kept the Perrot brewery supplied with cheap energy for about 50 years. Francis took his brother William S. Perrot into partnership, and in 1823 he married Elizabeth M. Morris, the daughter of his former boss. The Morris Brewery was soon absorbed into the Perrot Brewery. Francis's oldest son, T. Morris Perrot, graduated from the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy in 1849, and he started a wholesale drug business, but he soon left to join the brewing business with his brother-in-law, Edward H. Ogden, in 1869, under the title Francis Perrot's Sons Malting Company. 
Under this younger generation's leadership, the company purchased several more malting plants, including one in Oswego, New York. Other members of the Perrot family to follow Francis in malting were his grandsons, T. Morris Perrot Jr. and Elliston Perrot. These two oversaw the 1907 construction of the Buffalo, New York malting plant and were able to keep the organization open during World War I and Prohibition. The Perrot's malting company was sold in 1963 to E.P. Taylor owner of Canadian Breweries Limited. At the time of its closure, the company had been in existence under management of the same family for 276 years and 10 generations. It was the oldest business house of any kind in America. For comparison, the Bank of England only dates back to 1694. Thomas Morris II, Francis Perrot, William Sampson Perrot, Edward H. Ogden, F. Perrot Ogden, Elliston Perrot, and others are all interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. The Perrots and the Ogdens share a large plot with the Horton family in Section H. I will talk about Joseph Horton and his family in a future podcast. For now, we will move from the age of ale into the age of lager. One of the most repeated quotes in a frequent meme from Benjamin Franklin is, God made beer because he loves us and he wants us to be happy. He never said it, about beer at least. However, in an undated letter to French economist and philosopher André Maralet, Franklin did say, quote, We hear of the conversion of water into wine at the marriage in Cana as of a miracle. But this conversion is, through the goodness of God, made every day before our eyes. Behold the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards, and which incorporates itself with the grapes to be changed into wine, a constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. A high point for the brewers of Philadelphia and the rest of America was the Centennial Exhibition of 1876, officially known as the International Exhibition of Arts, Manufactures, and Products of the Soil and Mine. It was set in Fairmount Park along the Schuylkill River. 37 countries participated and nearly 10 million visitors attended this first World's Fair in the New World. Now, for most visitors, the highlight was the main exhibition building. It was a temporary structure that, at the time, was the largest building in the world, 464 feet wide and 1,880 feet in length. That is a total of 21 and a half acres under one roof, nearly a million square feet. For comparison, The original land for Laurel Hill Cemetery, what we now call Laurel Hill North, was only 32 acres. Other large buildings included Agricultural Hall, Horticultural Hall, Machinery Hall, Memorial Hall, which is still there, and the Women's Pavilion. I will cover all of them from a Laurel Hill perspective in a future podcast. Now, the Centennial Exposition was also the site of one of the first battles of the wets versus the dries. 
Many U.S. temperance societies, there were a few thousand of them by now, were treating beer like they did hard liquor, and they managed to prevent the brewers from sharing the space in Agricultural Hall. The Catholic Total Abstinence Union of the Diocese of Philadelphia had paid for a fountain to be constructed on the grounds to supply people with water so they wouldn't drink beer. But it was only partially completed when the exposition opened. You can see it today. It stands near the Man Music Center. Brewers defended their product as, quote, healthful, nutritious, and mildly stimulating. They finally did get their own building, but it was downwind from the livestock exhibition. The building was 96 feet wide by 272 feet long. It was two stories tall with a grand entrance that stood out from the center. There was a square tower above the center which allowed illumination of the interior. The center room was 85 feet high. The four other rooms had 45 foot ceilings. There was an elevator which took visitors to an outside gallery that provided a panoramic view of the grounds, the Schuylkill River, and the surrounding countryside. They were a little too far down river to have a view of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Inside the Brewers Building were displays of every manner of product and implement used in the brewing trade. There was an actual 150-barrel brewery on site. It was called the Centennial Brewery erected by a prominent brewer and architect, Charles Stoll of New York. Opposite the brewery was a complete malt house with equipment provided by Hughes and Bergner of Philadelphia. Charles Bergner is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section J. Architectural and engineering firms displayed models of breweries and equipment. There was an exhibit with a replica of William Penn's brew house. Next to that was a model of a modern brew house. There were various samples of hops, barley, and other cereals, as well as malt liquors of all kinds in glass and wood containers. In all, there were more than 200 exhibitors who sold raw materials, refrigeration equipment, grain elevator buckets, barrels and cooperage equipment, steam pumps and engines, and just about any other product that a brewer might desire. There was also a display for an early refrigerated rail car that caught the eye of some of the more progressive brewers. It was also in Brewers Hall that many people saw brand advertisements for the first time, something that could be placed in the windows of a drinking establishment to let people know what brands to expect inside. There was an ice house on the north side of the building, 70 feet long by 80 feet wide, double-walled, lined with wood shavings as insulation. There were three compartments, one each for ale, brew, and sampling. Each compartment could be at a different temperature. Samples of ale, porter, and brown stout were available for tasting. Now, it was a hot summer in Philadelphia, so naturally you would expect to be able to grab a brew while you were on the fairgrounds. But no sales of beer pints were allowed at first. As temperatures rose, so did the thirst of parched attendees. And since the exposition wouldn't sell them beer, they found it outside the gates, a small temporary city, which was actually more like a shanty town, grew up along what later became Parkside Avenue with flophouse hotels, low-end restaurants, ice cream saloons, 
stage shows featuring can-can girls and other questionable entertainment, and beer gardens. Lots of beer gardens. They stretched a mile in each direction from the main gate. When attendance started to fall at the fair, the organizers relented and allowed the sale of wine and beer. And the booze floodgates opened. The Philadelphia Times reported that by the 5th of August, Lauber's Restaurant had sold 44,175 gallons of lager beer, 6,000 gallons of wine, and 130 gallons of other liquor. Unfortunately, Philip Lauber's restaurant burnt to the ground on October 6th. This is not the Lauber who has a mausoleum at the Kelly Drive entrance of Laurel Hill Cemetery. That would be Carl Lauber. He was another highly successful liquor merchant, though. I'll talk about him in a future podcast. The Grand American Restaurant sold 15,500 bottles of table claret and champagne and 60,000 gallons of lager. The Southern Restaurant sold 35,200 gallons of lager and 7,000 gallons of other liquors. The French Restaurant disposed of 33,750 bottles of wine. And the Jewish Restaurant sold $29,900 worth of lager, Weiss beer, etc. Now, to confront the teetotalers, the brewers had prepared a pamphlet called Essays on the Malt Liquor Question. It said in part, quote, A brewer is just as necessary to the commonweal as a butcher, a baker, a tailor, a builder, or any other economic industry, proven by the present position of the trade in the United States. The Centennial Exposition introduced Americans to Philadelphia brews, and local brewers now had fans all over the country. Developments such as refrigerated rail cars allowed transport to areas that had never before tasted Philadelphia brews. And the breweries continued to grow. Remember that if you want to pay us a visit in person, both cemeteries are open from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. There are both live and virtual tours available for the curious. Go to thelaurelhillcemetery.org slash events. If you're listening during the first couple of days after this comes out, there's still time to get to the Memorial Day ceremony on Sunday, May 29th. It starts at noon. There are going to be a lot of Civil War reenactors, women in Victorian dresses, 21-gun salute at the grave of General George Meade, and two Civil War veterans who previously had unmarked graves will have their new markers revealed. It's also an opportunity to reflect on the true meaning of the day. There's no charge, but donations are welcome. That's Sunday the 29th at noon. June is a busy month for both cemeteries. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Sunday, June 5th from 10 a.m. till 11.30. Marty Foley is giving an accessible hotspots tour. People with mobility issues or who use a wheelchair or a scooter, this is a 90-minute tour on paved roads only, no stairs, and if you or a friend have avoided Laurel Hill Cemetery, because of concerns about getting around, this may be your opportunity. We have three routine hotspots and storied plots tours during the month. Saturday, June 11th, from 10 until noon, Jackie Mann. Thursday, June 16th, 10 a.m. to noon, yours truly. I will be giving a hotspots tour. Friday, June 24th, 10 a.m. to noon, hotspots tour from Rich Boardman. 
The themed tours, will you hear this? Saturday, June 4th, 1 to 3, Surprise Endings, They Never Saw It Coming, Part 2, from Rich Boardman. The first part of that was strictly in the south part of the cemetery, and it was a terrific tour. I think you'll enjoy that. Saturday, June 11th, 1 to 3 p.m., What a Piece of Work is Man, the Shakespeare Tour from Patty and Tom Stringer. You will be amazed at the number of Shakespearean connections in Laurel Hill Cemetery. It's, it's absolutely amazing. A brand new tour coming up Sunday, June 12th, 1 to 3 p.m. Out of the Closet and Into the Crypt, Queer Stories of Laurel Hill. Pat Rose is introducing this new tour, which I'm really excited about. And then, as is the tradition, the yearly Juneteenth tour this year is actually on Juneteenth. 1 to 3 p.m. Sunday, June 19th, to set them free. Abolitionism walking tour of Laurel Hill, Russ Dodge. Plus, plus on Friday, June 3rd, performance at 6 p.m. of Romeo and Juliet, a presentation by Shakespeare and the Cemetery Program Teens. The program is free, but RSVPs are required. This will be at the receiving vault in the south section, just over the bridge from Central. There's a concert on Saturday, June 11th at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Doors open at 6.30, a concert at 7.30 by the goth Americana group, the Bailey Hounds. They are returning for their first cemetery concert at Laurel Hill since 2015. Tickets in advance only. No tickets available at the gate because it might sell out. Cinema in the Cemetery. Friday, June 17th, from 8 until 10 p.m. The classic movie, perfect for the Juneteenth weekend, Glory. Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, Carrie Elwes, and Morgan Freeman in a movie made a third of a century ago that still resonates. Again, no tickets at the door. Tickets in advance only, because the movies usually sell out. Get them in advance. Some good news for this. Parking should not be an issue because the movie will be shown in the south part of the cemetery and the entrance is going to be the south gate near Robin Hood Dell. Plenty of free parking at the Dell. So park at the Dell, walk a few feet, come in the south gate, go see a movie. Glory. And finally, there is a members-only event on Thursday, June 23rd at 6 p.m. Members only, Summer Solstice, that's S-O-U-L-S-T-I-C-E, picnic and container display garden demonstration, $30. A picnic dinner is supplied, there's a donation bar available, and there is no wait list for this. You have to sign up in advance, and um, once those tickets are gone, they are gone. Okay. West Laurel Hill, there's a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places Tour, Saturday, June 25th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30. Mary Ellen Moran, one of the original West Laurel Hill Cemetery Guides, is giving that tour. That leaves from the conservatory. And Boneyard Bookworms, Thursday, June 23rd, from 6 to 7.30. Again, no fee. Please register, however. There are no virtual hotspot tours in June. Don't forget the on-demand virtual online tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Download the app that will take you either the gatehouse or the pedestrian entrance off Kelly Drive. Also, by hitting the events icon, it's shaped like a calendar. You can see all of the upcoming programs for the next month or two.
New, there is a virtual tour of West Laurel Hill Cemetery, from the Barmouth entrance off the Kinwood Trail to the Pincoit entrance off Riders Ferry Road. We are still waiting to find where its final home will be. For now, if you email me, joe at joelex.net, I will send you the link. It will probably be available in the next month or two for general distribution as soon as we settle into our new website. If you are a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, there's a members-only podcast that I did earlier this year. It concerns a murder victim buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, a Baron von Munchausen imitator buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, and a neurosurgeon opera company founder who's buried in France, but he has a cenotaph at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Good news, the second members-only podcast will be out any day now. Again, it's a Laurel Hill resident who died young, and her family immediately blamed her husband of less than a year, saying that he had poisoned her. From West Laurel Hill, a man who shows up in the biographies of several mid-19th century politicians, but who may be new to you. And the scion of a textile family who disappeared in an apparent kidnapping, which brought the FBI to Philadelphia to investigate. His family is buried at West Laurel Hill and at Laurel Hill. He ended up in Algeria. As a member, you will also get special live tours as well as discounts on all tours and a discount at the online gift shop and the actual gift shop, the brick-and-mortar place in the gatehouse at Laurel Hill Cemetery. See you around the cemetery. Let's get back to the podcast. As I mentioned before, the first loggers in the New World were brewed by John Wagner, who set up a small home brewery behind his sister's house in Northern Liberties on St. John near Poplar Street. Remember that in 1840, with the great consolidation still 14 years away, Northern Liberties was the eighth most populous city in the country. St. John is now known as American Street. There is a historical marker near the corner commemorating the location where, quote, America's first lager was brewed. Wagner had risked imprisonment or worse by smuggling lager yeast from Bavaria into this country. But he did not have the capital to invest in a large brewery, so his lager was shared among friends and neighbors only. It was up to longtime friends and fellow immigrants Charles C. Wolfe and Charles Engel to produce the first lagers in mass quantity. In 1849, they purchased a property at Fountain Green along the banks of the Schuylkill. Fountain Green is the one that forms a T-section at East River Drive slash Kelly Drive, where the Ulysses Grant statue is located. There were springs on the property for a supply of fresh water, and they built seven vaults to store the lager until maturity. In addition, they could harvest ice directly from the river to help preserve their product in the warmer months when they were not brewing. It was Charles Wolfe's son, Otto, who became the primary architect for breweries in America. Many brewers took advantage of the same amenities that Wolfe and Engel had discovered and started setting up shop close to the river north of Girard Avenue in the area we now know as Brewery Town. Soon there were dozens of breweries in the neighborhood. 
1846, a native of Heidelberg named Louis Bergdahl came to Philadelphia and worked with Engel and Wolfe before forming a partnership with Peter Shem in 1849 and starting a brewery near Fifth and Vine. In 1853, they purchased property which had been the home of Pennsylvania's first governor, Thomas Mifflin. It was near the Falls of Schuylkill, just off Ridge Avenue and what we now call Indian Queen Lane. They converted a large barn into a brew house. They dug vaults in the hillside fronting toward Mifflin Hollow, which is now known as Midvale Avenue. In 1857, Louis Bergdahl and his partner Charles Sata, who was interred across the street from Laurel Hill and Mount Vernon Cemetery, moved from East Falls to 29th and Parish, where they would be along the main line of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Bergdahl became the sole proprietor in 1871, and a few years later, his sons Louis Jr. and Charles joined the firm along with two sons-in-law. Otto Wolf expanded the complex, and by the turn of the century, the Lewis Bergdahl Brewing Company was producing more than 150,000 barrels of beer every year. Lewis tried to establish a dynasty. He and his wife, Elizabeth Wolf Bergdahl, had six children. Louise was born in 1850, Elizabeth in 1852, and a son, Charles, in 1855. Two years later, Louis Jr. was born, followed by Caroline Wilhelmina and George William Bergdahl. But Caroline died of diphtheria when she was only 18 months old. George went to work at the brewery when very young, and on 18 November 1871, as workers were lining hogshead with resin, the steam pressure of the process blew out one of the casks. A broken hoop struck George in the head, killing him instantly. He was 10 years old. Charles survived childhood, but died before he was 30, and 15 days later, Elizabeth died. Louis Jr. survived his siblings. He married a peasant woman named Emma Christina Barth, who was working as a maid in the Bergdahl household. They had five children together. The first was Louis Bergdahl III, who was born in 1884. The last was born on 17 October 1893 at the family house, 929 North 29th Street. It was a difficult birth. The doctor had to use forceps to extract the infant, and he was born with a broken arm and bruises on his head. He was named for the recently re-elected president, becoming Grover Cleveland Bergdahl. Grover was a sickly child. He suffered from epilepsy until he was 15 years old, but he quickly became Mama's pet. Louis Bergdahl Sr. died in 1894 after a long bout with tuberculosis and kidney disease at age 68. He was interred at Mount Vernon Cemetery. Louis Jr. took over the business, but he only lived until 1896, and he died when he was 40. This left Emma, the peasant woman, in charge of the brewery, five children, and a few million dollars. Despite this wealth, she continued to do her own cooking and cleaning. She was a penny pincher. She could be seen on Saturday mornings, barefoot in front of their house, sweeping the sidewalk. All of her children went to public schools. 
Now, Louis III became interested in automobiles, and he decided to build his own. In 1908, at age 24, he founded the Bergdahl Motor Company. That same year, he won the 125-mile amateur race at Ormond Daytona Beach in Florida. Developing simultaneously with automobiles were flying machines. The Wright brothers flew their biplane at the end of 1903. One of the next aeronautical achievements was by French pilot Louis Blériot, who flew his Blériot monoplane from Bark, France to Dover, England in 1909. It was a 23-mile trip. It took about 37 minutes. Another wealthy Philadelphia heir, Louis Rodman Wanamaker, arranged to buy a replica of Blériot's plane for $2,200 in order to display it at the department store. Louis Bergdahl III saw it and immediately bought it for $5,000. His plan was to set up an aerodrome near the Chamonix Mansion in Fairmont Park whose Commissioner A. Loudon Snowden, who's buried in the bridge section at Laurel Hill, initially approved the plan. Now, like his older brothers, Lewis and Irwin, Grover also felt a need for speed. He began his auto racing just in time to participate in the last auto competition to be held in Fairmount Park. The Quaker City Motor Club had started the 200-mile race in 1908. 25 laps through an eight-mile course in Fairmount Park. It attracted about half a million spectators. Just a few weeks shy of his 18th birthday, Grover entered the 1911 race. He planned to drive a Bergdahl 40 made by his older brother. But when his mechanics took the car on a test drive around the neighborhood, they collided with a trolley at 18th Street in Callow Hill, and it knocked Grover out of the race. The next year, the race was canceled. It was never run again. But Grover became the bane of police departments both in and around Philadelphia. He paid dozens, if not hundreds, of speeding tickets, both in the city and on the main line. Sometimes he roared up Market Street at the insane speed of 30 miles per hour. And some of the mainline suburbs learned to deal with him simply by issuing him a speeding ticket on principle, knowing that he committed some moving violation during his trek through their town. And because he was a wealthy young man, he paid off all of his tickets. In 1912, the flight pioneering Wright brothers made it known that they would offer flying lessons, and the 19-year-old University of Pennsylvania student Grover became one of their first students. After taking their course at refining his skills, Grover Cleveland Bergdahl purchased a Wright Brothers Model B, the first aircraft that included wheels. He took his new plane to a family property in Manoa, which is now part of Haverton in Delaware County. On 15 July 1912, Grover took off to Philadelphia City Hall and banked hard to circle the building, bringing traffic to a standstill and halting pedestrians in their tracks. After orbiting the William Penn statue three times, he headed back home, initially flying low over a westbound mainline train for 22 blocks before he gunned the engine and overtook it. On August 18, 1912, Grover Cleveland Bergdahl made the first flight from Philadelphia to Atlantic City. This 
very Wright Brothers plane is the one you now see at the Franklin Institute. They advertise it as the most intact Wright airplane remaining in the world. It was in 1914 also that the Bergdahls purchased some premium space at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, very close to the conservatory in the Montgomery section. They built a beautiful mausoleum. The first and many of the second generation Bergdahls were transferred from Mount Vernon Cemetery to their new final resting place, which faces rival brewer Frederick Poth's mausoleum across the parking lot. It is a frequent stop on guided tours. Also in 1914, Grover was training for an auto race in San Francisco. But while he was driving into the rising sun at 50 miles per hour, he drove straight into a barbed wire fence which had been set up as crowd control. A strand got caught in the crankshaft and the steering wheel. The ladder broke off and smacked Grover in the head, knocking him out. The wire also whipped him hard in the neck, leaving him with a deep gash, which, when it healed, left an ugly scar on his neck. In May of 1914, in a fit of frustration and concern, Grover's brother Charles filed a petition with the Court of Common Pleas asking to have Grover declared insane. If successful, Charles would be named Grover's legal guardian, as well as custodian for the $900,000 estate he stood to inherit. Mama Emma thought this was a clear case of sibling rivalry, and she swore to back Grover through this tribulation. This is the same month that Grover and his older brother Irwin were listed as contestants in the fifth running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But two of the three Bergdahl automobiles they sent did not arrive on time, and the third failed to make the qualifying time. So the sanity trial started in December. I was about to make a bad joke about, you know, the sanity clause in December. Okay. The newspapers began calling Emma Ma Bergdahl. Three psychiatrists, or alienists as they were known at the time, were called as expert witnesses. One of them, Francis Xavier Durkham, we met in a podcast a few months ago. Another was Ilwood R. Kirby, who's interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section G, Lot 361. He is remembered primarily for two events. Number one, he's one of the doctors assisting surgeon David Hayes Agnew in the famed Aikens painting, The Agnew Clinic. Number two, he was the victim of grave robbers a few weeks after his interment. His body was found outside his ransacked mausoleum on a March morning with his jewelry and clothing missing. At any rate, these three experts declared that Grover was not insane. The verdict was enough to split the family asunder. Charles changed his last name from Bergdahl to Braun, and Louis Bergdahl III became Louis Bergson. And now is where the real problems begin. During Grover's insanity trial, war had erupted in Europe. President Woodrow Wilson was desperately trying to keep the United States out of the battle, keeping in mind there were more than three million German Americans rooting for the Central Powers. 
But the U.S. was gradually pulled into the war on the side of the Allied powers, and anti-German sentiments ran rampant. In fact, the German hospital quickly changed its name to its current name, Lankenau. President Wilson called for a draft to bulk up a sadly anemic fighting force. Grover Cleveland Bergdahl dutifully registered for the draft on 5 June 1917. He listed his occupation as, quote, farmer and manufacturer of automobile parts, end quote. Plus, he was tinkering with his airplane's carburetor, trying to get maximum performance from it. On August 11th, Grover got his notice to report to his local draft board for a physical exam. He never showed up. The day before the scheduled exam, he'd withdrawn a huge sum of money from the bank and he went into hiding. His family made excuses and said that if Grover were allowed to fly, he would gladly join the army. But it was almost certain that Grover would end up in the infantry. Grover was labeled a deserter. His brother Irwin soon joined Grover in exile, but he eventually turned himself in, and he spent time at Leavenworth as a draft dodger. Mama Emma was arrested and charged with aiding and abetting her sons. During the arrest, she was flashing a gun at the feds, but her son-in-law came and bailed her out. On July 8, 1918, Grover wrote to the Philadelphia Public Ledger to plead his case. He promised to turn himself in if he would be held blameless and allowed to serve as a flight instructor, and he angrily denounced that he was pro-German. His draft board considered the offer insulting. The stalemate persisted until the armistice was signed in 1918, but the government would never forget. Grover came back to the homestead at 52nd and Winfield, a massive Gothic house that used to stand there. And it's, it's only about a half a mile from where I live. But he came back to visit his mother on January 7, 1920. Federal agents were waiting. Ma Bergdahl again tried to scare them away by waving a pistol at them. And the feds noted that there were weapons in every room of the house. Pistols, rifles, bowie knives. They took Grover to Governor's Island, New York. He was court-martialed and, like his brother, sentenced to five years in jail. But his first stop was at Governor's Island, peeling potatoes at Fort J. Grover told his guards a story that caught their ears. He said that while he was on the lamb, he had buried $150,000 in gold in the mountains of Virginia. And he wanted to get it before he started his sentence at Fort Leavenworth. Somehow, the army guards decided this is a fair request, so they allowed him to return to Philadelphia under the guard of two sergeants. And while he was in the family mansion, he slipped out the back door into a waiting automobile, and he went on the lam again. With his chauffeur, they drove west to Indiana, then doubled back to Washington, where he cashed his treasury notes into gold at the U.S. Treasury itself. And then, with a tin can full of gold in the trunk of the car, they headed west to Minnesota, crossed into Canada, obtained fake passports, and sailed for Germany. He took up residence at Eberbach, 33 kilometers east of Heidelberg. 
Eberbach is not far from the Rhineland, where American troops were still quartered with little or nothing to do. When some of those troops found out that the United States' most famous draft dodger was living nearby, a couple of soldiers decided to take things into their own hands. Two ex-sergeants, Carl Nath and Frank Zimmer, planned to capture Bergdahl himself. They went to Eberbach and held Bergdahl up at pistol point as he sat at the wheel of his car as host to a wedding party. It was now that Bergdahl earned the nickname the Fighting Slacker. Grover knocked the pistol from Nave's hand with a quick blow and sped away in his car. A shot fired after him slightly wounded the bride. The two Americans were caught and nearly lynched by the crowd which had gathered, and the two GIs were tried and given short prison sentences. It was a second attempt to kidnap Bergdahl in 1923. Three American ex-GIs, along with a Swiss soldier and a Russian soldier, made an attempt to grab him. Two of the men hid in Bergdahl's hotel room, while the others waited in the car below ready to rush the kidnapped man over the French border two hours away. They had underestimated the fighting slacker. Grover bit off the end of the thumb of one of his assailants and shot the other one who died. The remaining conspirators were captured by German police and given jail sentences. Bergdahl lived in constant fear in Germany. He was shot at several times. He always left the house armed. But he was homesick and he wanted to come back to Philadelphia to visit his aging mother. He moved to Weinsberg, Germany and married a German woman named Berta and they had several children together. Twice he did make secret trips back to Philadelphia. The first time he stayed in country from 1929 to 1933. The second time from 1935 to 1938. Finally, Grover Cleveland Bergdahl returned to the United States in May 1939 and surrendered to authorities. During his 20 years of exile, the United States had spent millions of dollars trying to capture him, and his name was one of the most reviled in the nation. He was sentenced to serve the remainder of his original term plus three years. He was a model prisoner at Fort Leavenworth, spending his time in the woodworking shop and teaching prisoners English. When World War II started, Grover was the only person left in jail for crimes committed during World War I. In August 1942, his brother Louis Bergson, who had inspired Grover's love of race cars and airplanes, collapsed and died at age 57. Lewis was interred in the Everglades section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery. In possible exchange for release, Grover asked permission to join the Army Air Corps, although the last airplane he had flown was by now literally a museum piece suspended in the Franklin Institute. Perhaps remembering the last time that Grover had wanted to delay a prison stay, the military declined his offer. He finally was released from jail on parole in 1944. He asked newspaper reporters to allow him to fade into obscurity, and he moved to the family's Harmony Hill farm in Downingtown with Berta and their children. Emma Ma Bergdahl was a shell of her former self, but she got her wish to see Grover one last time.
She died at Lankanau Hospital on December 4th. She was 83 years old and is interred at Mount Vernon Cemetery across the street from Laurel Hill. Grover's personality had changed. He became a domineering and a verbally abusive boss. He started mistreating the animals on the farm. He was suspected of poisoning one of the children's dogs and once upset by the sight of a cat playing in the front yard, he grabbed a 22 caliber rifle and killed it. His children were terrified of him. He had also rediscovered the reckless driving habits of his youth. He was jailed for beating and pointing a gun at one of his workers. And when he was released from prison, he packed up the family and moved to a new farm on the James River in Virginia. Berta and Grover's oldest son, Alfred, was ordered to report for induction at the start of the Korean War. He took his father and his uncle's path, and he refused to report for duty. He was sentenced, like his father and uncle, to five years in prison. Another son, Irwin, was with his good friend, Charles Patterson Van Pelt, over the 1952 Labor Day weekend. They were mistaken for burglars and ambushed with a 12-gauge shotgun. Van Pelt was killed almost instantly. A few years later, the Van Pelt Library at the University of Pennsylvania was dedicated by his parents to his memory. Irwin was critically injured, but he did recover. Despite the move to Virginia, Grover's mental health deteriorated. In 1953, he chased off a telephone repairman after accusing him of planting bugs on the line. When there was static on the radio, he was certain that the FBI was listening in. He continued to torture and poison his children's pets. Plus, he started drinking heavily. By 1959, there was no doubt that he had become, quote, consistently and blatantly psychotic, end quote. In 1960, Berta called Virginia State Troopers, who assisted in bringing Grover to the Medical College Hospital in Richmond, where he was found to be paranoid and delusional. Berta filed for divorce, saying she and their four minor children lived in mortal fear of him. She also forbade Grover from setting foot within a few miles of their Virginia farm. When Grover was released from the hospital, he moved to Honeybrook to live with his brother Irwin, but he ended up back in Virginia, moving from hotel to hotel. By 1963, he was back in a psychiatric hospital where he would spend the rest of his life. He underwent both electric shock and insulin shock therapy. And by the time that he died of pneumonia in January 1966, his mind had regressed into his childhood. The world's most reviled draft dodger was 72 years old. He was buried in Windsor Gardens Cemetery in Matthews, Virginia, with a simple grave marker. And ending a history of infamy, his youngest son, Grover Frank Bergdahl, served honorably in Vietnam. I am going to finish with a cautionary tale that made the Philadelphia newspapers for several days back in 1878 and 1879. It took place at the busy intersection of Ridge, Callow Hill, and 10th Street, which had been the center of an entertainment district for many years. There were several taverns located in that area and theaters. 
Adam Forpaugh's circus building once stood at that very spot. In the 1870s, the circus building had become the home of Gilmore's Varieties, a burlesque show which featured young women dancing the can-can, an import from the French music halls of the 1840s, complete with high kicks, splits, and cartwheels. The rowdy male audience was usually intoxicated, and the after-show crowds frequently caused neighbors to call police to report boisterous mobs of inebriated men wandering through the neighborhood, shouting obscenities, and committing acts of vandalism, not to mention watering their gardens. At one matinee performance, the police raided and arrested 25 dancers, whom they charged with, quote, participating in an improper performance, end quote. Most of the audience scrambled and got away, and the girls were required to pay a fine. But the entertainments continued. During April of the centennial year, the new National Theater opened next to the original circus complex. It had a seating capacity of 1,800 and was a good distance from the so-called proper theater district of Philadelphia on Chestnut, Walnut, and Broad Streets in the center city area. Daniel Archer was a successful merchant with a large hat store at 939 Ridge Avenue, just feet from the theater. He was a tall man with a heavy mustache. He was 47 years old, and he lived at 657 North 10th Street with his wife and seven children. His hat business was very prosperous, assisted by the nearby theater people. But, among other merchants on the street, he had the reputation of being a mean drunk. On Tuesday, 29 October 1878, he paid a few visits to D.J. Walling's saloon in the theater building at the southwest corner of 10th and Callow Hill, sometimes taking a drink, sometimes not. After closing his shop at 5 p.m., Daniel headed to Walling's and asked the bartender Samuel Riddle, quote, if the women were there, end quote. He was directed to a wine room in the rear. He found companionship among the three women sitting there. One of them was an actress at the Variety named Bella Johnson. The other two were Mary A. Fenton and Ada Dawson, who resided at 1029 Wood Street. They had come into the back room after the matinee performance and ordered whiskey cocktails, beer, and other drinks. Now, at about this time, an actor with the stage name of Harry G. Richmond his real name was Augustus J. Boyle, Jr., entered the tavern. Richmond was in the final week of a month's engagement at the New National, performing in his own play called Epitaphs. He was 28 years old, of slim build, light hair, and a smooth, boyish countenance. He had considerable fame as a low comedian and had traveled with Haverly's minstrels and performed in minstrel shows here and in other cities with great success. The New York Herald once said of him, quote, He abounded in humor and wrote two or three comic sketches for the variety stage, which were quite successful. His engagement at the New National was paying him $125 a week at the time when a skilled laborer like a carpenter might make $15 a week. A Richmond had left the theater at half past five and walked up 10th to Ridge Avenue when he headed into the saloon. He knew Archer, as the two men had been drinking together the night before. But a spirited discussion quickly led to a dispute. 
Archer started throwing insults at Richmond and even made a physical threat with his fist under the other man's nose, but he was pulled back by Miss Fenton. Richmond went back into the bar room saying, Ladies, I'll bid you goodbye, as I do not want to have any words with this man. Archer left through a side door with Miss Fenton following, and a few minutes later, Miss Johnson and Miss Dawson followed. They saw Fenton and Archer on the corner. They were going to pass them, but Fenton came to them and said, Let us go home. I am afraid of Archer. About this time, Richmond came out of the saloon and said, Come, ladies, are you going home? Archer followed the group, threatening Richmond verbally, saying, I'll kill you, you blank blank. It's not written in the newspapers what he actually said, of course. Richmond led the ladies into Kelly's saloon to avoid Archer, and he placed them in a private dining room behind the bar. He then stood at the end of the bar by the door. Archer came in a few minutes later, and he grabbed Richmond in a scuffle. John Doherty, a special officer assigned to the theater and its tavern, tried to break it up. But Archer grabbed Doherty by the lapels of his coat. It was here that Richmond reached over to the bar and grabbed a small but heavy earthenware pitcher and smashed Archer one blow on the back of the head. The pitcher shattered. Archer fell heavily to the floor, his head bleeding slightly. He was unconscious. Some eyewitnesses say that Richmond kicked Archer while he was down. The bartender, James Hart, who ran an oyster saloon at 342 North 10th Street, ran to call the proprietor, Kelly, who started out to 9th and Wood for a physician. But Archer was dead when they returned. Richmond had walked out as soon as he dealt the blow, and he went to what was called in the newspapers a disreputable house in Wood Street above 10th, where he remained with the three ladies for a few minutes before he started for his home at 1353 Christian Street, which is now a Dunkin' Donuts in South Philadelphia. That is where his wife resided. One newspaper noted that she was in the last stages of consumption. Now, when Richmond returned to the theater in the evening to perform as usual, Special Officer Doherty met him in the lobby and said, I want you. You're joking. What for? What's the matter? Doherty said, that man is killed. Well, (laughs) then I give myself up. And they went off to the 8th District Station House. The coroner's inquiry took place on 31 October 1878, determined that Daniel Archer had died from compression of the brain due to clots, but there was no skull fracture. Harry Richmond was to be tried for murder in January 1879. And on 18 November 1878, Daniel Archer Sr. was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 7, Lot 383, magnificent view of the Schuylkill River. At some point, a large bust of Archer was placed on a sheltered table at his final resting place. The roof of this shelter has a classic veiled urn on top, very common Victorian cemetery symbolism. The trial of Harry Richmond for the murder of Daniel Archer began on 27 January 1879 in the court of Oyer and Terminer with Judge James Tyndale Mitchell presiding. Mitchell, interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section S, Lot 4, would later be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. 
One of Richmond's attorneys was Lewis C. Cassidy, who would a few years later be the Attorney General for Pennsylvania. He's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section K, Lot 10, also with a gorgeous view of the Schuylkill River. The prosecution brought in eyewitnesses from both taverns, both men and women. Even Annie Archer, the deceased wife, testified. The defense declared that Richmond's striking of Archer was clearly a case of self-defense and that Archer was a violent man by nature. They presented witnesses who told of Archer pushing people over in the street, drawing a knife on a man in another saloon, and knocking the teeth out of another man during a barroom brawl. And everyone agreed that when Archer got drunk, he used the vilest language imaginable. Several other local saloon keepers testified to Archer's foul nature when drunk. The jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. On 2 February 1879, the Philadelphia Times reported, Mr. Augustus Boyle, otherwise known as Mr. Harry Richmond, is a very fortunate person, having killed his man and received therefore the commendation of a sympathetic jury of his countrymen, he will henceforth be more than ever a hero and a favorite among the boys who patronize the variety theaters. Mr. Richmond's achievement was to knock a troublesome hatter over the head with a pitcher, as the result of which the latter died. An ignorant police and an unappreciative grand jury looked upon this performance as homicide, and a hard-hearted district attorney proposed to have Mr. Richmond put in prison. But the jury, the palladium of all our liberties, holds him blameless, and who shall say he was not? We may expect, as a consequence of this verdict, that the popular pastime of knocking men down with barroom pitchers will receive a fresh impetus, and all variety actors will see the advantage of selecting Philadelphia as the scene of any killing they may have to do. End quote. Less than two weeks after the verdict, Harry Richmond was back in business. There was an announcement in the Times that, quote, Harry Richmond's sensational drama, Beware of Tramp, has proven such a success that it is announced as the principal attraction at this theater for another week. Four acrobats and a host of other specialists, including Negro comedians, dialect actors, vocalists, etc., will appear in the course of the performance. Over the next five years, Harry Richmond is mentioned dozens of times in the pages of local newspapers with various performances. Apparently, all was forgiven as far as the audience was concerned. But on 20 August 1885, Harry G. Richmond, a.k.a. Augustus F. Boyle Jr., died of consumption, that is tuberculosis, in Camden, New Jersey. He was only 38 years old. After services at St. Peter's P.E. Church in Philadelphia, he was interred at Evergreen Cemetery in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Gilmore's variety was destroyed by fire in 1888. But the building of the new National Theater is still there. In fact, there is a health club on the first floor. If you want to learn more about theater in Philadelphia in the 19th century, there is a superb podcast. It's called Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. And I highly recommend it if you have any interest at all in the theater scene. Peter Schmitz, the host, just does a fantastic job of covering all of these people. If 
you go to Laurel Hill Cemetery today and you visit Daniel Archer's grave. The shelter for his bust is still there, complete with the draped urn on the roof. But the bust, his head is missing, almost certainly due to a vandal decades ago. The archives at Laurel Hill has no photos of it. It has no record of when the head went missing. If you're standing there contemplating this headless tribute to Daniel Archer, look to your left. There is an obelisk just a few feet away. It's for the Crotzer family. And the name that will probably leap out at you is Marie Antoinette. In mid-June, the next episode of Biographical Bites from Bala will tell the tale of American psychologist Helen Bradford Thompson Woolley, known for her rigorous research methods and her groundbreaking research on sex differences. Her own late-in-life development of mental illness led to a downward spiral of paranoia and depression, but her innovative studies are still talked about today. The July episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, is called Friends of Thomas Jefferson, a Trio of Williams. William Duane, whose newspaper Philadelphia Aurora helped elect Jefferson our third president. William Drayton, a frequent correspondent with Jefferson on architecture, botany, animal husbandry, and landscape designs. And William Scott, Jefferson's private secretary while he was in France, and the man Jefferson referred to as his adoptive son. All three Williams are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. Street parking on Ridge is not recommended. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are now open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and will be to October. In the winter months, we're open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we want you to come. We welcome the dog walkers, the bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours now. We expect you to follow current CDC guidelines regarding masks when you join us. And we still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. And at least two members-only podcasts, 
of all bones considered Laurel Hill stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me, joe at joelex.net. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Okay, bibliography. Uh, the big one that if you're at, in any way interested in beer in Philadelphia, it's simply called Philadelphia Beer, A Heady History of Brewing in the Cradle of Liberty by Rich Wagner. That is from the History Press, Charleston, South Carolina, 2012. There's an older book that I found useful. It's called Brewed in America, The History of Beer and Ale in the United States by Stanley Barron. It's a Little Brown and Company publication, Boston, Toronto, 1962. Some of the information on the Peratz and the Morrises came from the blog of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania as part of their memory stream. That's contributions that they make to the Philadelphia Inquirer. There's an article, Artificial Refrigeration and the Architecture of 19th Century American Breweries, by Susan K. Appel. That's from the Journal of the Society for Industrial Archaeology, 1990, volume 16, number 1, pages 21 through 38. Also, Local and Regional Breweries in America's Brewing Industry, 1865 to 1920, by Martin Stack. That's from the Business History Review, Autumn 2000, Volume 74, Number 3, pages 435 to 463. If you are a longtime Philadelphian, you know that I had to quote Joe Sixpack someplace. And the article, Beer Was the Attraction in 1876 by Joe Sixpack, was published July 28, 2006 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I got it from the joesixpack.net website, and I cleared it with the man himself. He gave me permission to use that information. The story of Daniel Archer and Harry Richmond came mostly from the Philadelphia Times of 1878 and 1879. I did ask Peter Schmitz of the podcast Adventures in Theater History Philadelphia to take a look and confirm my geography on the location of the theater, bars, and house of ill repute. And I do recommend his podcast, Adventures in Theater History Philadelphia. For the over-the-top story of Grover Cleveland Bergdahl, I primarily used The United States Against Bergdahl by Roberta E. Dell, A.S. Barnes & Company, Incorporated, Cranberry, New Jersey, 1977. Finally, the major opus on Grover Cleveland Bergdahl has to be The Artful Dodger, the 20-year pursuit of World War I draft evader Grover Cleveland Bergdahl by Dirk Langeveld. It's printed by Create Space, an Amazon company, 2018. This is a big book. The narrative itself runs more than 500 pages, and then there are another 40, 50 pages of references. If you are at all interested in the story of Grover Cleveland Bergdahl, 
get the book, The Artful Dodger. Okay, again, thank you for listening. Maybe I'll see you at the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.